Hello, and thank you for listening to this month's episode of Recovering God. It seems strange, but when we recorded this episode, coronavirus wasn't really on our radar. And in such a short space of time, so much has changed in the way we live our lives, both here and around the world. Alison and I will address this more in next month's discussion, but we wanted to let you know for now that we're praying for you and your loved ones, and that we plan to keep recording and releasing episodes of the Recovering God podcast each month for as long as we can. Thank you for your continued support, and we hope you enjoy this month's interview with Rachel Starr. Hello, and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform for people to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this episode interesting. Here we are again, Grace. Hello. Have you done your homework, Alison? Did you read the Maya Angelou poem you <gasps> said you were going to read? I actually did. What did you Only think? Only because I knew you'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was powerful. I mean, challenging um, to me as a white woman mm. and really powerful. It reminded me of the stage play Amelia that I went to see about um, Amelia Bassano, you know, the the... Dark Lady, Shakespeare's Dark Lady, and they did a play about her last year, and it was incredible. The whole place was standing and cheering at the end because she was. There was this big speech at the end where she does uh, a speech about the fight for equality and to be recognised. Wow! Just amazing. Not heard of that one. Yes, it was. If they if they do it again, you should really go and see. Mm. You're so cultured, Alison. I know. <laughs> Love the stage. <laughs> Not on it, you understand. Of course. <laughs> okay, so um, we're going to be listening to somebody that you interviewed. Yes, Rachel Starr. Uh, she's Biblical Studies Tutor at the Queen's Foundation for Ecumenical Theological Education. It's a mouthful. It is, uh, here in Birmingham. We just call it Queen's because that's <laughs> easier. <laughs> um, and Rachel is a hugely, hugely knowledgeable woman but also a really gentle character. And I found it quite calming to be around her, actually. Um, but she's produced this um, this resource on Ruth, um, which we'll put the details and a link um, on the... Is it the show notes? Is that what you call it? Oh, OK, let's oh, have show notes. The show notes. Um, See, I am on the stage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put a link to it. I really recommend that everybody goes and has a look at it it's just she completely immersed herself in the book of Ruth and the amount of information um that she provides in this resource is incredible and and all of it's so relevant to now as well there's loads of stuff about um about migration of people and um there's stuff about liberation theology in there as well there's loads of really good stuff whoa so, yeah. stop the bus what's liberation theology grace oh no <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me that and <laughs> you have to read the resource um oh are you can ask me what liberation theology is well i've got it because you just said it oh, okay. what do we do mm. what is it Liberation theology, as I understand it... Go on, that'll, that'll have to do. <laughs> we'll have to come back later and... Um, yeah, yeah, we're right, go on. Well, as you understand it. it... As I understand it, liberation theology is theology 
written from grassroots level of people who are basically oppressed and who need freedom. And it's theology written from the perspective of um, marginalised and oppressed peoples who are looking for theology that um, of a God who liberates and who frees. Um, is that, that I think that's an excellent explanation of what liberation <laughs> theology is. I would never have been able to say it so eloquently if I'd have known what it was. No, I do. I did have, I've heard of it before. Anyway, that's really helpful. So she's talking about all sorts of things that are really relevant for people and, and important. Mm. The Book of Ruth is really important to me, so I'm really looking forward to this. And I might even have to do a Bible study on this stuff, um, the resource, because... I was on a retreat last year and um, and I felt that God was saying the book of Ruth is the new way of getting into reading the Bible in a new way. And Ooh. yeah, yeah, and it and and then I went to somewhere and they were talking about the book of Ruth and it just kind of opened my eyes to reading the Bible in a new way. That journey still goes on. Mm. Well, you definitely need to read this then. I do. Shall, uh, shall we listen to the interview then? Let's. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank Welcome you. to the Recovering God podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Perhaps we could start by talking about your Christian faith and how that's been shaped, uh, a bit about your history. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think that's, that's such a big question, isn't it, to <laughs> answer and I... I um, was thinking about it beforehand and, and uh, had lots of different ways in. Uh, I think I'd say that it's been shaped by lots of different people and lots of different texts as well. So uh, we're, we're having this conversation in my office and I kind of can see we're surrounded by books, many of which um, I've kind of dipped into, many more of which I haven't managed to get to. Mm. Um, but that kind of sense of being part of a conversation that has shaped my faith is very central to me. So I've been really fortunate. I've been studying theology informally kind of since I was 18 and now teach theology and that has been the main shaper for my faith really the the engagement with academic theology with different voices different ideas different traditions about God Mm. yeah and um, I suppose alongside that uh, would be my experience of being a member of the church so I'm part of uh, the Methodist Church and my local Methodist Church has always been a real inspiration to me. Um, a church that does just does a lot, does a lot of kind, good things in the community for each other, very caring, very supportive, takes its faith very seriously in terms of a practical, caring side to living out the gospel. What the gospel means is is looking out for each other, seeking to do good in the world seeking to be trans- a transformative presence in the world and that was very much part of how I grew up in the faith and understood what it meant to be a Christian really. Mm. And was was it were you raised in a Methodist setting? Well I, I was and I wasn't so there's a Methodist roots in my family um, my kind of recent family but I didn't really start going to church until about 15 and I went through a Methodist youth club so I went to the youth club first and then started going to church and at the same time was beginning to study um, theology at school and realising that that was something that was really life-giving to me and I wanted to kind of carry on 
um, so then went on and studied theology at university and mm. um, the two came together in a very um, helpful way and my church was a church which took studying and asking questions and exploring ideas seriously so that whole process of being a teenager when you've got lots and lots of questions and being encouraged to ask them and keep them open in many ways both in church and at school was just wholly helpful and positive mm. so yeah I was very fortunate <laughs> mm, that sounds fantastic yeah it was and you're a theologian now and you teach theology yeah. and what would you call your area of expertise mm. <laughs> well I think um, in terms of what I did my research on so I did my doctoral research in Argentina and that was around uh, domestic violence and how the church talks about marriage in ways that um, are sometimes really uh, unhelpful for women particularly I was thinking about women who had experienced domestic violence and then we're being told these things about marriage that it's, you know, very idealised and um, it, just lots of kind of unhelpful ways in which we frame marriage. So that was my focus um, in Argentina was thinking really around, I suppose, practical theology, but also some kind of themes within wider theological conversations and particularly informed by feminist theology. Mm. But here... Um, I teach uh, both uh, feminist theology and theologies from Latin America, but I also teach a lot of biblical studies, particularly Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. So um, again, I, I love I love all those areas. So it's wonderful to get a chance to teach in kind of both areas. Mm. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that uh, yeah, a bit later. later. <laughs> yeah. Um, and would you call yourself a Christian feminist? Hmm. Yeah, I was quite interested in my response to that question when I was thinking about it because I think I probably wouldn't and I wonder whether that's because I'm more likely to call myself a feminist Christian. I don't know if other people have <laughs> made that distinction and I don't really know if it's actually a distinction that's worth making but it feels to me as if my feminism has shaped my understanding of the Christian tradition um, more than my Christianity has shaped my feminism. And I think that if it hadn't been for understanding something about the possibility of being a feminist within the church, I wouldn't have stayed in the church. I wouldn't have felt that was a positive place for me. Mm. So the the realisation that there was something called feminist theology, that you you could have, that there were aspects to the Christian t traditions that were very much seeking justice and equality and inclusion for all, was really important, really essential. And the whole idea of reimagining the tradition in a way that was open and creative and life-giving was really important as well. Mm. So I had that kind of light bulb moment early on in my academic studies as, as an undergraduate. And yeah, I, I think that was essential to me staying as part of the church, really. Mm. Yeah. So did your feminism predate your... Christianity? Mm, probably not but I think it was again around that same kind of time that I hadn't necessarily put a name to some of the things that I felt and then suddenly was given um, a name uh, and uh, realised oh yes of course this is this is this is very much part of who I am and I you know had made a lot of assumptions which were 
connected to feminism. Mm. I hadn't quite realised that that's what I was doing. Yeah. You are the first person to make that distinction (laughs) so far, so that's great. Um, And can you tell us what your image of God is, or what what do you call God? Mm. If I'm involved in teaching or leading worship in some way, which I do a little bit, not very much in terms of leading worship, I probably try and use quite a range of different images for God and would try and ensure that those images were open, often not gendered in any way, um, and would be more about kind of describing God as God of justice or loving God or creator God, something like that. But if I'm in, in my own prayer space and prayer time, I think think about God as as a space, as as Heidi Newmark, who's a a Lutheran writer, she talks about breathing space. And for me, that's the closest I can come to kind of imagining how I might name God as a breathing space, as an encounter that enables me to be fully myself and fully honest about my fears, my hopes, and to feel that I have that space to breathe and almost the breath of God is is the place of encounter as well is is kind of enabled within that space. Mm. Yeah. So it's I don't know whether um, again some listeners may find that image more helpful than others. I suppose, but that's probably where I am. Thank you. Shall we move on then? Mm. Shall we talk about uh, a resource that you have produced mm-hmm. recently, coming out of your Methodist Church uh, connections? And much of the content's written by you, but also co-authored with with mm-hmm. a, a wealth of other people yeah. as well. It's uh, I've been reading through it, and it's it's fantastic. And it's about the Book of Ruth. Let me just say that growing up, Ruth, uh, the Book of Ruth was presented to me as a kind of uh, love story, and mm. um, Ruth herself was in a strange way the kind of ideal Christian woman, mm. and you know how you. In her faithfulness, I suppose, to her mother-in-law and in her seeking of a husband uh, in Boaz. Is that fair to say about the Book of Ruth? Was I taught correctly? Well, I, uh, when I start talking, so I've been doing a few um, training days that are based on the resource um, in different parts of the country in the Methodist Church recently. And one of my opening questions is, what kind of a story is this? And then when people share, they may well say a similar kind of view to that. It's a love story, it's a romantic story. And and I say quite clearly, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it might be lots of things, but it's not a simple romantic comedy or romantic tale. It's probably more of a comedy than a romance, perhaps. Mm. Um, so although there are, uh, there's certainly something about loving relationships within it, they are... Um, crossing and connecting lots of different characters and perhaps more the book is about the exploration of what do we mean by God's loving kindness and how we might make that visible in our lives. So the love that Ruth has for um, Orpah or Naomi are just is just as important as the love she may have for Boaz if she has that love. In fact that probably that relationship is the least clear in terms of whether it's a loving, a relationship that's entered into because of love. It's that that's really not stated within the book, and most of all, it's a book about survival. It's a book about poor migrant women who need to find a way of surviving. So, if there's a love for anything, it's a love 
for the grain and the barley harvest rather than um, for a husband and and a child, Mm. I would say. So maybe Boaz isn't as important a character as we've uh, we've been teaching. And I and I say that one of my little imaginations in the the third chapter of Ruth is that um, it's the, the chapter describes Boaz lying down on the threshing floor by a heap of grain, and Ruth encounters him on the on the threshing floor, and lots of different things happen then. But I have a feeling that actually Ruth is looking for the heap of grain and she just kind of happens to stumble over Boaz. <laughs> thinks, oh, I've got to do something with this man because he's between me and the grain. And it's the grain that me and Naomi need to survive. Mm. Yeah. You talk about Orpah in the first week of mm-hmm. this um, this resource. And she's a character that I think tends to get overlooked or she's portrayed as the example of what not to do but you really bring out something more about her and if you could say something about the character of Orpah yes. as you see her yes I, I'd like to say that this is only happens occasionally but I think a, a lot of the times we're encouraged to read the bible in a way that sets women against each other or sets lots of different groups but often when we have women they're portrayed as rivals in some way or one choosing better than the other. So we have Mary and Martha, for example, in the New Testament. And the same goes with Ruth and Orpah. In the history of interpretation, both Jewish and Christian have tended to in some way demonise Orpah and say Ruth is the faithful convert either to Judaism or to Christianity, which is a kind of later Christian reading. And Orpah is is kind of demonized as either the one who doesn't convert to Judaism within Jewish scholarship or the Jew who doesn't convert to Christian Christianity within Christian um, later readings which again is is a kind of crazy reading um so one of the things that I've learned from what what would be described broadly as post-colonial feminist scholarship so um women who are writing from an identity in a context which has experienced being colonised by often Europe, um, a European nation or a, a America. Um, those scholars have said, actually, Ruth is perhaps not the one that we look to for encouragement or to find ourselves. Maybe it's Orpah who resists being drawn into the dominant culture of the story and says, no, my own tradition is valuable um, and I have a loyalty to the survival of my own family. Um, so Orpah returns to look after her mother. And why why would she be blamed for that? Mm. So lots we can learn about resisting that tendency to set one character up against another and to suggest there's only one way of being faithful. Because clearly the text says that Orpah is faithful to Naomi and Naomi says that she has demonstrated loving kindness towards her. And then she remains faithful to her own community. Mm. And that's something to be celebrated. Mm. And how about Naomi herself then? What, mm. what would you like people to take away about Naomi? Naomi isn't a character that, we're, again, we're necessarily warm to. So once again, she might be set against Ruth as the older, bitter woman who is reliant in some way on Ruth, perhaps doesn't appreciate Ruth. And those elements are definitely part of the story. But all in all, this is a woman who's grieving, who's lost her husband and then her sons, and 
is having to return home to a community which perhaps she feels she's excluded from. So um, she, there's a lot that is said about Naomi's silences and how she fails to respond well to Ruth and fails to encourage her. But if we were reading this through a kind of trauma perspective, we might say, well, this is a woman who's in grief and traumatised and her silence is about her sorrow, her overwhelming sorrow and grief um, that never is taken away. So despite the fact that she has a child at the end that is supposed to and somehow kind of restore her to the family, that that grief still stays with her. So it's foolish to, for us as readers to, to suggest that she suddenly, everything's happily ever after for Naomi. But at least she finds a way to belong in the community again. Mm. There are, that's one of the topics um, that you raise in the, this resource that I loved. You, you asked that question whether loss can be replaced mm -hmm. and uh, you focus on Ruth's sort of foreignness and her sort of migrant status, which is very important, you yeah. know, particularly at the moment, and uh, questions about what kind of borders we put up uh, to God's redeeming work. And you don't pull any punches, I think, mm -hmm. in, in this, uh, and all of the people that, that also contribute. Uh, you've got uh, you've got women writing about Asian womanist approaches to mm -hmm. the text. You've got post-colonial approaches, which you've mentioned, and. I just find it very rich to read and quite unusual for something to be coming out of a church-based mm. <laughs> resource, mm -hmm. which is sad to say. So for women who are in churches where we are being taught the more traditional bog-standard version of Ruth and books like it, do you have any advice to those women about where to dig a little deeper, how to dig a little deeper or... or or how they can see other perspectives than just what's being taught from the front. Mm -hmm. I'd say the most important thing is to read the text for yourself, because often we assume we know what's in the text, and when we read it, it's it's all there. I mean, I, I had a when I was talking on Saturday about the Book of Ruth, there was one woman who was quite upset about what I was saying, I think, and wanting to resist some of the suggestions that I was making. But actually, in the text, it's there. It, there's no getting away from it. We just are used to, I think particularly within the church, glossing over, making nice, making Ruth nice. And as with all the Bible, there's lots, plenty of things that are positive and encouraging, but there's also some mess and dirt and stickiness in there. And we have to realise that's reflected in our own life. So for me, that's always a really helpful thing that we can see the mess and crazy muddledness of our own life within the Bible. But if we think the Bible has to only be full of wholesome, good characters and stories that end, they live happily ever after, we know that that's not true for our own life. So why would we expect it within the Bible? So reading the text for, for themselves is, is the first thing I'd say. And making sure that they look around for... Uh, you know, there's lots of good resources online, there's some terrible resources online, but there's lots of good ones. So there's two to perhaps to mention. Um, there's the visual um, commentary on scripture, which is a, a, a website where there's three different uh, visual images of a particular passage of scripture are put up and then a commentary is written about each. And that once again opens up three very different artistic representations of a passage mm. that allows people to then see, oh, what is it that I like about this one or that one? How does that change my view? And then if, if, if listeners wanted to 
um, understand a little bit more about the context of the Bible, the best resource, I'd say, is a website by the Society of Biblical Literature called Bible Odyssey. It has this great, really short little articles on context, you know, what, you know, what was food in the Bible, you know, how did the Bible come to be, what is a canon, um, you know, who wrote the, the Gospel of John, all those kind of very quick, um, easy to read, easy to understand little articles, all written by scholars writing from their own expertise, but in a very accessible way. Mm, thank you, they okay. sound fantastic, yeah. I've not heard of those before. Yeah, they're both great. <laughs> I'd like to say that studying the Bible is something that keeps giving me joy and I want I really want listeners to know that we're sometimes taught to be afraid of scholarship and study but I've been studying the you know the book of Ruth which is four chapters since only since last summer but I'm still I mean I've still got a pile of reading over there on my chair I've still got so many articles each article each commentary I read just fills me with joy at a new thing I hadn't managed to see myself. So learning from others, reading the Bible with others, reading the Bible in conversation with scholars and friends and people at church, just keeps bringing out what riches there are there. So to encourage people to keep keep going back and being open to new ideas and insights. That's great encouragement, thank you. So now comes the horrible question, mm. I'm afraid. What do you think is the most important issue affecting Christian women today? I think that it's, on the one hand, something that is shared with lots of women and lots of men. It, that need for us to challenge those issues of power and, and misuse of power and how we are encouraged sometimes to collude or overlook that power. And we know that's a, a real issue within the church in hugely problematic ways or sometimes in very kind of normal, boring, everyday ways. But we have to be able to step into spaces of power and challenge our own misuse of power and others. If I was going to be more specific, I'd say that even though it's not necessarily been very visible so much within my own liberal tradition in this country, my experience of Latin America and certainly talking to friends elsewhere in more traditional parts of the church, I think a huge issue is about women's bodies and women's reproductive health and how that somehow become a marker of what it means to be Christian in some circles that you you want you know to be Christian is to limit women's access to reproductive health and it just seems crazy to me that we've let that happen that we've let Christianity be defined around that rather than Christianity be defined around issues of justice that include reproductive health justice and women's access to reproductive health care including abortion if that is necessary for them. Yeah, another unique answer. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So, dear listener, we've just tried to record this without the microphone being plugged in. That's why we're laughing. We're so professional. We are. Alison, what did you think? I thought she was lovely. Mm. And um, I particularly was challenged by the idea that you go to church and can discuss theology. Because I've never really experienced that. It's more, this is the way to interpret this passage, rather than that 
let's talk about how we um, think about this passage. Mm. It's not really built into the way that church does things. Mm. I, well, I can only talk from my experience. You, you have the sermon at the front, don't you? And sermons are very removed and telling people things, aren't they? Mm. And there's no real room for dialogue. Uh, somebody was talking about this thing called... I don't know anything about it. I'm going to, I've got a book on my book list to read about it, about the Midrash tradition, which is about um, Jesus being brought up in, a, in, in the Jewish culture where you sit around and talk about scripture, mm. which, of course, would have been the Old Testament because there was no... Need. Hebrew Bible, Alison. Sorry, the Hebrew Bible. That's, a, that's the name nowadays. Sorry. <laughs> I think it always has been. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> not, not in my circles, it hasn't. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's, that's a, uh, you know, fancy being able to sit around and actually say, well, let's read this, let's read this bit of the Bible and see what it actually says and then talk about what that could mean and try and get rid of the, this is the right way to read it and actually allow it to speak for itself. That's quite exciting. Mm, and allow people to have different approaches to it and freedom to discuss those and then towards the end she talked about how studying the bible brings her joy yeah and i wonder how many people don't really equate joy and reading the bible um and she talked about reading the bible with people in community engaging with scholars and it's a bit it's like that midrash thing that you're talking about that there can be real fun in bringing groups of people together to talk about the Bible, if it's open and if people feel able to ask questions and express doubts and all of those things. Um, I think if there's no freedom there, then it becomes more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So so it's my aim now to have a, a group where people can sit around and actually debate the Bible. The trouble is it takes a bit of time. You've mm. got to actually do some preparation. It's so much easier to be told the right answers, as it were. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think we all, in some ways, like to just be told. <laughs> Particularly if you're having a hard week, it's nice to just go to church and be told this is it and not have to think too much about it. Mm. But that's not... I don't think that's the best way in the long term. No, nor do I. And what she did by... you know, She said, oh, I've only been studying Ruth since last summer. We're recording this in March. That's a long time to be looking at four chapters <laughs> of the Bible in detail. And how often do we just spend months looking at four chapters or just one short um, book of the Bible. That'll be never. Yeah, exactly. And I guess she has, in some ways, the luxury of doing that in that she is an academic theologian. But in churches, we go through a series of things. You know, we maybe will stay in a, a book of the Bible for a few weeks at church and different you know, sermons on that. But we're not encouraged to go into real depth in no. it and engage with different commentaries and different scholars and talk to each other about it. And I think that's probably really hard, but could be really interesting. Mm. And we don't read the whole thing. Mm. We only read snippets, don't we? So um, me and me and my husband are reading um, 
the book of Exodus, which is an odd choice, but anyway, um, for Lent. Romantic. Oh, we know how to live. Um, Instead of watching the TV in the the week when we, this is our relaxation time at 10 o'clock at night. What do you do? You read the book of Exodus. Anyway, but, but. As we're, we're reading it in a, diff, a different version as well, which is quite challenging. But there's all sorts of stuff that I think probably because it's in a different version and because we're reading the whole thing that we're noticing that we've never noticed before. Like what? So it was a book, it was about um, Aaron, Aaron, whatever he's called, Moses' brother. Mm. And I said, hold on a minute. I mean, we know that he's his brother, but... How could he have had any brothers? Because they were all killed. So we decided that both... We knew Miriam was older because she was obviously there when he was the basket was put in the Nile. Mm. So we decided that Aaron must be a lot older too. But we'd never actually thought about the fact that he got this brother and actually all the baby boys were being killed. Yeah. I ah, see. Got to read it for yourself, like gotta, Rachel said. Got to read it for yourself. You got to sit with it and think about it and ask questions. Mm. It's it, it's a uh, we find it really um, we haven't, we not got very far, obviously, but um, but we found it really interesting. Mm. Good idea. So, what else do we need to talk about? I like that she talks about Orpah. Yeah. And normally we just gloss over Orpah, and she uh, what Rachel said about often we have these. Characters in the Bible that we're encouraged to see as um, rivals mm. in some ways, or one's an example of what not to do and one's an example of how to do it properly. Mm. Like Mary and Martha, and yeah. I was thinking um, Miriam and uh, so Moses' sister and um, Zipporah, yeah. Moses' wife, um, and Orpah and Ruth in these situations. And what she said about um, post-colonial feminist scholars, some of them saying, actually, Orpah's the one that we look to um, as an example of how to uh, how to live, and um, because of her resisting the, um, I think she said, what was it, uh, not being drawn into the dominant culture, mm-hmm. and and holding her family and the culture of her upbringing really highly, mm. um, and so seeing more in her than in Ruth is really interesting because as you know, you and I are quite obviously white women. Mm. <laughs> Uh, white British women and so we have been encouraged to look at Ruth she's our example and um, any other characters we just kind of overlook Mm. and actually they've got a lot to say Mm. Um, so I thought that was really interesting reading other perspectives is really important it's like that thing we heard somebody speak about Hagar didn't we about how important she is in the Bible and how we kind of overlook her um, because she's not the kind of, I don't know, the famous one, I suppose. Mm. Mm, interesting. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting about how women are set against each other. But don't you think... I mean, I think that's probably part of our society as well. You know, we set things start get set up in a really good way and then they all go to a bit to pot and they start getting told in a different way and we lose the godliness, mm. we lose the grace... That's true. And it's why I I really love the the pins we got each other for Christmas, Alison. Oh. Uh, that Katie Lockie has made that say women supporting women. And actually, I look at that pin and I think, yeah, we do kind of have to be reminded to support each other because society tells us that we are competing with each other for mm. for partners, for 
status, for, you know, appearance, for (laughs) all of these things. And women need to be supporting each other far more than we naturally do. And actually, maybe we need to put a bit of that into the biblical women as well. Mm. And our interpretation needs to stop pitting women against each other in the Bible. Yeah. Right, we're on a mission now then. (laughs) We really need somebody to come on and talk about Hagar, don't we? Mm. That makes me think. Any suggestions, listeners? Let us know. Yeah. What do you think about her thing about Heidi Newark? Was it? Newmark. Newmark and God being breathing space. Mm. What do you think about that? I really like that. We've had a couple of people talk about, when we've asked that question about what do you call God, we forget that actually you think about in Judaism, you don't call God anything. Mm. God is too holy to be named and to Mm. be described in that way. And so I like the answers that say, actually, I I don't call God anything, really. Mm. (laughs) God is... And then try and describe what God feels like, maybe more. And the idea of breathing space is um, a really nice description for God. I've been challenged recently by how busy life is and Mm. how I don't allow much breathing space in my day and then when I don't feel like God's talking to me I shouldn't really be surprised because (laughs) if God is breathing space and I allow no room to breathe then yeah it's not surprising no what did you think about yeah that's a good point yeah interesting what you just said on top of what Rachel said because because I'm an extrovert and because I I kind of get my energy from being with people I love being with people Actually, being with people, I think I've said before, is a complete distraction for me. I need to be on my own in order to be able to focus on God. And as part of that, I usually do some breathing exercises in order to be able to kind of focus down on breathing God's spirit in. That's kind of my way in, usually. Mm. Like breathing in the Holy Spirit or breathing in the oxygen that God gives us or whatever it is in a really conscious way because normally we shallow breathing uh, it's part of the kind of relaxation and meditation strategies isn't it but it, mm. it that's that's how I kind of sig- signal to myself this is God's time mm. interesting breathing space what do you think about the thing about a feminist Christian I liked that that she flipped it round and I liked that she was saying that her feminism has had more of an impact on her Christianity mm. than the other way around mm. That might be quite controversial for some people, but I think it's an encouragement that she said that if she hadn't seen a place for her sort of feminist ideals and um, and all of that in Christianity, if she hadn't found feminist theology, or if she hadn't seen um, a concern for justice mm. and um, all of that, then she would have left church. Mm. That that's such an important part of who she is, mm. but that. It's an encouragement that she has seen that and she has found a place for that in Christianity. And I think that's an encouragement to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And wonderful that she puts that in the midst of all sorts of justice issues. Because, we, you know, as much as this podcast is about uh, women, uh, you know, actually as our concern isn't just about women, it's about justice for all marginalised groups. And I guess that's because we believe that that's what the Bible is about, actually. Mm. It'd be interesting to see what other speakers say about that. And I, I, I liked that she was brave enough to come out and say that 
women's bodies and reproductive health has become certainly globally a matter of um, almost a Christian marker mm. in some places. Mm. And we see that really close to home when you think about um, Northern Ireland until relatively recently mm. um, and abortion rights and, and everything and that idea that women's bodies have become a little bit of a battleground. Yeah. You see it um, a bit in the US as well. A battleground for Christian identity in a way that is so disproportionate to what Christianity is about. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was very interesting that she raised that. Yeah, absolutely. Did you... This is not that... This is a lot more superficial than that. Did you... <laughs> thinking about reproduction. Did you... Um, did you hear that? I believe I heard that VAT is no longer going to be charged on sanitary products. They're going to actually remove VAT. Yes, I heard that. That's really good. About time. Because <laughs> I think it was in Parliament about two or three years ago, and they went, "Oh no, it's not an essential." Like, mm. okay, let's just bleed everywhere, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> then we'll see how essential it is. Yeah. No, that's really good. <laughs> At last. Anyway, back to more serious things. So I think my takeaway message from from what we've heard from Rachel is that we need to keep reading the Bible for ourselves, we need to keep challenging ourselves on our theology and not be afraid to ask questions of it. Mm. What do you think? I agree. And do that in groups. Yeah. Find find other people and talk about all this stuff. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to start with using Rachel's stuff on Ruth. Definitely do. I would encourage all our listeners to go and find that. The PDF is free, so you have no reason not to. Brilliant. (laughs) Right, well, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovering God podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and tell others who you think will be interested. You can follow us on Twitter at Recovering God, on Instagram at Recovering underscore God, or contact us by email at recoveringgodpodcast at gmail.com.